0: The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information, we encourage you to visit our website northbryantbaptist.org. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 is probably not on the top of your summer reading list that's just one book of many man-made attempts on setting a precise date for the return of christ the man who wrote that book predicted that the rapture would happen sometime between september 11th and september 13th 1988. it was a prediction that was taken so seriously by at least one christian tv network that they began airing instructions on how to prepare for the rapture. And when it didn't happen, they went back to your regularly scheduled programming. (laughs) And the author changed his prediction and printed several more books over the next decade or so. And from what I saw and what I'm aware of, all of his dates have come and gone. It's a mistake to try and set a date for the coming of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, you may remember the apostles asking him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus responded by saying, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus Christ is coming at the time appointed by the Father. It will be exactly the perfect moment, even though I cannot give you the precise date It's an error when we try to go to that extreme. But it's also a mistake to go to the other extreme and act like we don't know anything about it at all. And act like we don't know anything about his coming, act like we don't expect it, and assume that we will be totally surprised. That shouldn't happen either. We'll see that in chapter 5. Last week we learned that when Christ comes, Both dead and living believers will take part in that great event. Departed saints will be resurrected. Living believers will be caught up. And we will all forever be with the Lord. And that's a truth that we must use to constantly comfort one another. As we move into chapter 5, Paul continues to teach about Christ's coming, but he, he changes perspectives, at least for the first few verses. Christ's return will mean something great for us believers. It will mean that eternity with him that he just talked about at the end of chapter 4. But it will be different for unbelievers. And so Paul is still talking about the return of Christ, but from a slightly different perspective. And we'll see that. And this morning, I want you to understand that the day of the Lord will be both unexpected and unavoidable. For the unbelieving world, but it should not overtake Christians. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read all the first 11 verses, but we'll, we'll focus on the first five this morning. Paul writes, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child And they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. At the end of chapter four. Paul offered arguably the most detailed teaching in Scripture about the coming of Christ. And I mentioned last week there's a lot to learn about it, but what we learn is a lot more of the how and not so much the when. But now, ironically, when we come into chapter 5, Paul sort of does mention the when when he brings up times and seasons, right? And the word times here is your normal word for time. It, it just sort of refers to a, a measured standard, a measured duration of time. Our word chronology comes from this word, and you might just simply think of it like this, of how much time would pass. You know, how long before this happens? It's sort of that idea, but the word seasons is a bit different. It refers more to an appointed time or an opportune time and one author said it this way, that it refers to times at which certain foreordained events take place. Maybe oversimplifying it a bit to say it this way, but maybe think of our phrase, at the right time. You know, when you use the phrase, at the right time, you're not, you're not necessarily talking about in 45 minutes. But when the conditions are right, you know, when it's that appointed time, and it, it may be along those lines... And so Paul told the Thessalonians, he didn't need to write about those things. He didn't need to write about the the duration of time before Jesus is coming. He didn't need to write about the appointed season of that day. Not because teaching about those things would be useless, but partly because they were already taught. They already knew some things, and he's going to mention that. And I think partly because there was only so much he could teach. First of all, they already knew some very important truths about that day, and we see that in verse 2. And so Paul doesn't go into great, great detail here about times and seasons because they already knew something about it. It's similar to, if you look back in chapter 4 and verse 9, he said, touching brotherly love, you don't need me to write a lot about that. Because you're already loving one another. And you're taught by God to love one another. So I don't need to write a treatise about love. And it's similar here. He doesn't need to write a novel about times and seasons. Even though, boy, don't we wish maybe he would have. He doesn't write that much about it. Because they already knew certain truths. And that truth specifically is in verse 2. He says, for yourselves know perfectly. word perfectly doesn't have the idea of being sinless here. It's, It's... it's something that strictly conforms to a standard, which is really interesting when we think about the return of the Lord. Some translate it, you're fully aware, or you know full well. And it makes sense when we think about it that way. The knowledge that the Thessalonians had about Christ's coming paralleled previous accepted teachings about Christ's coming. It it conformed to that standard. What they knew didn't contradict anything else that had ever been revealed or would ever be revealed about the day of the Lord. And the specific truth that they were well aware of in the rest of the verse says, You know that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And maybe that's sort of ironically the other reason Paul didn't need to write a lot. Even Paul didn't know the precise date. There's only so much he could say. But just because Paul or the Thessalonians or even we don't know the precise date doesn't mean that we're ignorant. We know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Isn't that an interesting way to describe the day of the Lord, though, when you really think about it? Maybe we're used to it. We're we're desensitized to this because we've heard it our whole lives. But to compare the day of the Lord to a thief in the night? How dare you compare anything God's involved into a nighttime robbery? He's not a burglar. He's not going to do anything wrong. That's not the point of the comparison, is it? The overlap is that just as a thief comes suddenly or unexpectedly while you're asleep or you're on vacation... The day of the Lord will surprise those who are unprepared for it. Men do not expect God to invade their world. And we'll see that more in verse 3. But I want you to just think about the fact that the Thessalonians were already aware of this. He said, You already know that. It conforms to other things we've already known. So this teaching was something Paul had already taught them while he was in the city. It's also a teaching that runs throughout Scripture, parallels Jesus' own words. There was a parable that Jesus told, and he ended it by saying, this was in, in the famous Matthew 24, when he's giving some signs and different things of his coming. He said, "Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this: that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter wrote the same thing. He said, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. It doesn't matter what all the scoffers say about it. It's coming. In Revelation 16, Jesus said, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. What the Thethelite. What the Thessalonians knew about the day of the Lord coming like a thief echoes everything in the scripture about the day of the Lord. It, it conforms to that. You already know this. And so the point is that this world will be surprised, shocked, caught completely off guard by the day of the Lord. They will be unprepared for it. What exactly is the day of the Lord? One author defined it like this, and it's a simple definition, but I I loved it. He said, it denotes the day when God will intervene in history to vindicate his chosen people, destroy their enemies, and establish his kingdom. The day of the Lord is an important phrase in the Bible. And it's actually found a lot more in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets used that term, the day of the Lord, to warn people about an impending day of divine judgment. It was a day when God would pour out his wrath upon sin. It was a dreadful day if you were unprepared for it. The prophets used some terrifying imagery when they talked about the day of the Lord. I want you to turn to Amos chapter 5. We'll read a verse there in just a moment while you're finding Amos chapter 5. I want to read a few other Old Testament prophets and what they said about it. Isaiah said, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Ezekiel said, The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds a time of doom for the nations. Joel chapter 2, before the verses we read earlier in the service, Joel said, Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The day of the Lord is not full of rainbows and sunshine and smiling faces. It's a day of judgment. Some of the Jews assumed it'd be this great day. But notice what Amos in chapter 5 of his writing said. Amos chapter 5 verse 18. He said, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Keep your finger in Amos because we're going to come back to it here after a while. The point I want you to see with these Old Testament references is that the day of the Lord is characterized by judgment. Amos warned the Jews, it's not going to be what you think. You're desiring the day of the Lord and yet you're not right with the Lord. It's going to be a day of darkness, not light you're not right with God you're not ready for that day it's used a lot more in the Old Testament but when the New Testament uh, the New Testament authors use the phrase they relate it to the return of Jesus Christ when Jesus comes it will be a terrifying day of judgment for those who are not right with God Paul wrote in 2nd Thessalonians that Christ would be revealed in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's a dark day of judgment. And if you look back in 1 Thessalonians in verse 3 now, this overarching theme of divine judgment is exactly what Paul mentioned next in verse 3. For when they shall say, Peace and safety... What? Then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The idea of sudden destruction, sudden doesn't necessarily refer to the speed of the judgment, but how unexpected and unforeseen it was. That's why the day is like a thief, right? Because they're not expecting it. And then here's all, all of a sudden there's judgment. It's startling because they're not looking for it. The idea of the destruction in the verse, don't think of destruction like annihilation. It does not mean that unbelievers are going to be zapped out of existence. There are some people who teach that. There are some people who believe that but the bible does not teach that in second thessalonians paul used this same word for destruction and he specifically called it an eternal destruction away from the presence of god this word does not mean that they go out of existence as one author said it means unavoidable distress and torment it's a sudden everlasting judgment But why will this day be so shocking if the Bible clearly predicts it over and over and over again? The Bible tells us this is coming. The Bible warns us that God will come to judge sin. So why is this day so unexpected? I think there's two reasons. One is probably a pretty obvious one. People don't believe the Bible. Many, many people in this world, sadly, do not care about God's word. They don't believe it. So they don't take seriously the repeated warnings in Scripture. But there's another fascinating reason that Paul alludes to in verse 3 about why a day of judgment from God would be so unexpected, and it's because of the mindset of the people. It's because of how secure they feel. Notice what they're saying in verse 3. For when they shall say, peace and safety, that's when sudden destruction comes. Peace and safety. There is a time in the Old Testament where one of the uh, the false prophets in Jeremiah, they cried, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But this is not a direct reference to that Old Testament Uh, Pardon, Jeremiah. In reality, this phrase, peace and safety, had become a propaganda-like slogan for the Roman Empire because of their famous Pax Romana. Roman peace. This is fascinating to me. Decades earlier, Caesar Augustus ushered in this golden age of Rome where there was this time of unprecedented peace and prosperity and security that lasted about 200 years. And when Paul wrote this letter, they were right in the middle of that famous time of Roman peace and safety. One commentator noted that there were inscriptions all over the empire attributing to Rome and its army the bringing of quote, peace and security to one region after another. Do you remember that Thessalonica was a free city? She's part of the empire, she answers to Rome, but since she was a free city, she had a unique and special relationship with Rome that afforded her some amazing perks that other cities didn't even have, even during that wonderful time. Thessalonica was intimately aware and appreciative of the peace and safety that Rome brought her. But now Paul takes this Roman slogan, peace and safety, and essentially says it's worthless when God comes. One man wrote it like this. Paul must have thought, what foolish slogans and vain hopes when the day of the Lord is coming? What emperor will you hide behind when King Jesus comes? What government could possibly shield you from the authority of God? Rome may have had the world's strongest army. Maybe she enjoyed some peace and safety for her citizens, but even Rome cannot protect anyone from the judgment of the Almighty God. It doesn't matter how safe and secure or peaceful that any government in this world makes you feel The kingdoms of men cannot stop the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is inescapable. And that's what the end of verse 3 is all about, right? The inescapable nature of the day is the very next point Paul makes. He says, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. For some reason, the thief in the night simile gets all the headlines. We know that one. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. But have you ever ever heard anybody saying, the day of the Lord is like a woman in labor? (laughs) We don't say that one that often. But it's just as important. It gives a a different truth alongside of the sudden and unexpectedness of that day. And the the crucial truth is that it's not that people are going to be surprised. And it's not that it's going to be painful Although both of those may be true. The comparison between the day of the Lord and a woman in labor is the unavoidable nature of the two. When the day of the Lord comes, there's no escaping it. That's exactly what Paul said. They shall not escape. When labor starts, there's nothing you can do about it. I know we have modern medicines and techniques to slow it down if it's premature. But generally speaking, and ultimately speaking, a woman with child will give birth to that child. When genuine labor pains come, the birth is inescapable. And that's Paul's point, is the certainty and inescapability of God's judgment. And he is so forceful and emphatic here that he uses the same type of phrasing that he used back in chapter 4 and verse 15. When he made the point that absolutely no way will a living believer be caught up before a dead believer is resurrected. It's not possible. And now he uses that same force here to say it's not possible at all to escape the day of the Lord. I don't care what your slogan is. It's not possible. Look back at Amos chapter 5. I hope you kept it marked. Amos gives a a great description and sort of funny description of how inescapable the day of the Lord is. Look at Amos 5. Let's back up and read verse 18 again and we'll read through verse 20. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. As if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand upon the wall, and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it? I've always loved the imagery in these verses of Amos. He gives a picture of this man. He's out in the field, minding his own business. And he sees this ferocious line coming to attack him. And he runs away, whew, you know, just narrowly escapes But his flight led him right to a bear. This man's having a bad day. He better get home where it's safe. So he runs from the bear. He finally gets home. He can take a deep breath and put his hand on the wall to rest, finally in the safety and security of his own home. And there's a snake that bites him. It's sort of a hilarious scene. But the message is not funny at all. You can't run from God. Ask Jonah how that worked out for him. You cannot escape the judgment of the Almighty. So for the unbelieving world, the day of the Lord will be both unexpected and unavoidable. But if you look in verse 4 and 5, back in 1 Thessalonians, we must be different. We should not be surprised by his return. Verse 4 specifically says, But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Paul specifically removes believers from the imagery of the thief in the night. I think sometimes we miss that. We are not in darkness. We're not children of the night. So the coming of the Lord should not overtake us or surprise us the way it will the world. Why would the king's children be surprised when the king comes back? So we may not be able to set a precise date. We might not know all of those specific details about the when. But we're prepared Because we've trusted in Jesus. We're expecting his return. And we can look at this world from a biblical point of view and have an anticipation that it's drawing near. In Matthew 24, Jesus told his disciples, When the branches of a fig tree become tender, you know summer's near." I remember Brother Penn one time, a long time ago, used the analogy of frost in Arkansas. And he said something along the lines of, I can't tell you the exact date of the first frost each fall, but I can get you in about two weeks. I can get you pretty close. I may not know the day or the hour, but I can see the seasons. We don't know the day or the hour, and it's foolish to go to that extreme and make predictions and publish books about it. I can't give you 22 reasons why the rapture will be in 2022. I can't tell you the precise date and time of Christ's return, but I can tell you that you shouldn't be surprised. It shouldn't surprise us like a thief. We should be able to see things in this world setting up for his return exactly the way the Bible prophesied. I can urge you to be ready. Jesus said there would be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines, and that these would be the beginning of birth pains. When the birth pains begin, what's unavoidable? Jesus mentioned that there would be persecution of his followers, false prophets leading many people astray, lawlessness increasing. Does any of that sound familiar? There's one really interesting thing that's sort of been talked about the last couple years, and is Revelation 13 predicts that people's hands or foreheads will bear the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell things. And for probably nearly 2,000 years, that's probably been a, a tough thing to understand how that would work. But did you know that in some countries, they're implanting microchips in people's hands? to prove that they've been vaccinated for COVID-19 in order to go places? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the vaccine is the mark of the beast or the implant proving you have been vaccinated is the mark of the beast. But we're blind if we don't see those things at the very least as a precursor where people will not think anything weird at all to be marked in the forehead or the hand in order to buy things. There's at least one company in America that offers its employees free microchip implants that gives them uh, access to locked rooms and snacks in the break room. Boop. Get my Snickers here. Boop. Go back to my desk. I assume it makes a beeping sound. It <laughs> be, be kind of disappointing if it didn't. One man said, I wouldn't be surprised if within 10 years, 50% of Americans have some type of implant. I can't tell you the precise date and time of Christ's return. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Paul wrote this and thought it could be in his lifetime. But it sure looks like the fig tree leaves are getting tender. If Paul lived in anticipation of Christ's near return, then what does that say about us? It may very well be that we are the generation who are alive and remain when Christ returns. And we better be ready. I do know what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. He said, now is the day of salvation. Christ is coming. The day of the Lord is inescapable. And you need to be prepared by trusting in Him today. If you reject His offer of salvation, if you do that now, it will be too late when He returns. There is nothing in this world, no man, no religion, no king, no government, no empire, no matter their slogan, that can offer you peace and safety When God comes, nobody can shield you from God's judgment except Jesus Christ, because he already took the Father's wrath upon his shoulders when he went to the cross for you. You're only prepared for his return if you've trusted him as your Savior. And if his Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, today is the day of salvation Repent and trust Him. And for those of us who are saved, for those of us at North Brighton, for our church as a whole, we should be motivated to spread the gospel and see more people forgiven and saved because there is a dreadful day of dark judgment coming upon this world. Would you stand? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. and the peace and safety that we have in him. Thank you so much for his love for us. Help us personally and as a church to show that love to others, to be good witnesses so that other people too come to know him as savior. Father, help us to look at this world through a a biblical worldview and see how things are setting up exactly the way your word predicted. There's no surprise there. Help us to be ready and watching when he returns. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.